knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner going, he's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up to what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi, and welcome to Theology Gals. I'm Colleen Sharp, and my co-host is Angela Whitehorn. And Angela, I will tell you that my husband may be a little unhappy with me because November 1st comes, and I'm turning on the Christmas music. <laughs> now, he says I'm supposed to wait until December 1st. But, I mean, I would think at least, like, right after Thanksgiving, Black Friday, you know, at yeah. least by then, you should be able to play it. I do love some Christmas music myself. My mom, uh, when I was growing up, loved Christmas music year-round. Um, but you know what? At our house, we do kind of wait until after Thanksgiving. I love to put up our Christmas tree the day after Thanksgiving. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. Yeah. So do you have a real tree? Do you do a real tree or do you have an artificial tree? Well, you know what? We had, um, Matt and I had an artificial tree for years and years and years until after Jasper was born. And I had always wanted a real tree and um, our artificial tree um, (laughs) kind of got uh, a few branches broken. It got year after year, jankier and jankier and (laughs) looked worse and worse until one year I just decided, okay, well, we're done by this. And I put it down by the road and got rid of it. And so then the next year rolled around and Jasper was just big enough to understand Christmas tree. And he was so excited. And I told him for about a week, this Saturday, we're going to put up our Christmas tree. And he was so excited and kept asking me about it. And I had completely forgotten that we got rid of the tree. And so Saturday rolled around and we got everything ready and uh, Matt kept going up into the attic, bringing down (laughs) more ornaments, more decorations. And finally, after, you know, a half hour or 45 minutes of getting stuff out, he looks at me and says, I don't think we have a Christmas tree. (laughs) (laughs) So we had to press pause and and go uh, out and get a Christmas tree and from then on, we've had a real tree every year, and I do love that. I love the smell. I love how it looks. Um, I, I just think a real tree is kind of special, so we'll probably stay with real trees from now on. Yeah, I I love real trees, and we did real trees for years. Probably the first, 
I don't know, 12 years of our marriage, except for I'm allergic to them. Mm -hmm. And so every Christmas I would just be miserable. And finally, I just, one Christmas I said to my husband, I just can't anymore. Can we try to find a nice artificial one? Now, a lot of artificial ones don't look so great, but we happened upon a sale and we, I don't know, we got it like way ahead of time or was it right after the season? Something like that. And it like people walk in and be like, oh, I thought that was real. So at least I'm glad we have one that looks real. But my kids day after Thanksgiving, when can we put up the tree? They, they love doing that. So we do that. Now, I know some people know in, in reform circles, there's some controversy around celebrating Christmas. I'm not going to say a lot about that now. I think that Angela and I would both agree with the Westminster Standards and even some of the Book of Church Order, I think, or Directory for Public Worship addresses it. I'm not exactly sure what the PCA one says. I, I know the OPC one, but that Christmas isn't a church celebration. But I think uh, what Ashley, and I'll just say this, Ashley and I did an episode last year, Should Christians Celebrate Christmas? And what we talked about was where the discussion fits in with the regulative principle of worship, but also that we are okay with private celebrations. And Mm -hmm. so that's kind of where we stand on. And there's a lot of good links in that episode. I will link it in the episode notes here. I don't think we need to do a whole other episode on that. And, you know, I respect if people decide they don't want to celebrate that. I, I respect that. I think it's their liberty to decide that. And my husband and I really looked at it very closely early in our marriage. But, uh, you know, we are okay with private celebrations. I think we'd probably hold the same view that every pastor that we have had, even in the RPCNA, where I know some people don't celebrate it, but that private celebrations are acceptable. So apart from the uh, church celebrations, and that view might be new to you too. So definitely check out that episode. Well, with everything we've been talking about the last, I would say even couple of months where we've talked about discernment, we've talked about moralistic therapeutic deism, we've talked about why theology is important. Angela and I thought, you know what, let's talk about how we study scripture. I know that we have listeners are in so many different places from newer Christians. I talked to a gal today who said, I've been a Christian four years and I'm just learning so much. And I know we have gals like that. We have gals that are in their fifties and been Christians for 30 years. And so I know some of this might be basic or maybe just going over things that you already know, but we just wanted to talk about how to study scripture. And this has been a subject that a lot of our listeners have requested, you know, like, I don't know how to like, I know how to read my Bible and do a devotional, but I don't really know how to study scripture. Right. And so, um, you know, I think coming at this topic, one of the first things that we think about is a quiet time. And um, I know that I grew up in a culture where the quiet time was king. And I think probably a lot of our listeners can relate to that. The idea that you need to have a quiet time every day. It must be first thing in the morning. Um, I I remember hearing at a church that we used to go to, um, yesterday's quiet time is not good for today. 
And um, so I think one of the things that we want to start with is talking about trying to avoid idolizing a daily quiet time where we we certainly believe that studying the scripture is very important, but just the sort of the measure of spiritual discipline using did you read your chapter today as the the litmus of spiritual health. I think we want to discourage from that because studying the word really does look different for everyone. Don't you think, Colleen? Yeah. And, you know, we talked about this on a question and answer episode when we, and if you haven't heard that and it's something you're interested in, especially for moms, we talked about finding time to read your Bible as a mom when you have young children. And it does look different for everyone. You and I have talked just how it even looks different depending on your personality. Mm-hmm. You know, um, some people, I, I have some friends that they religiously read through their Bible every single year, cover to cover. In fact, my husband's like that. Every single year, cover to cover. And and that's just kind of how he, that that's his personality. He's very organized. He likes everything just so. That's his personality. And I'm very different than that. And I have spent, I spent so much of my younger years feeling guilty because I wasn't like the girl over there who got up and read five chapters every morning and spent an hour in prayer mm-hmm. that my personality, my study style was very different than hers where sometimes I got through, you know, if I, if I had 20 minutes, you know, when I was in college and I'm working a job and stuff like that where I might read five verses and really study those five verses. And so I really don't want to ever put guilt trips on people because you're not spending enough time or you're not doing what the gal over there is doing. But I do think finding what works for you, and that's going to look different depending on where you're at in your life. My study time looks very different now than it did when I had four young children. Right. And, you know, we need to remember that we live um, in a very privileged era where we have access to the Bible. Probably most of us um, have more than one Bible in our household, probably many. I know that we have lots of Bibles, but that hasn't always been the case throughout history. There have been many, many Christians who didn't have a Bible themselves, and so their access to the Word was through Word and Sacrament in the gathered assembly. And so we just need to remember that we have access to the word the way that we do today. And that's a wonderful privilege. But the daily read your chapter every day is not the test of, are you really a Christian? Because, you know, many throughout history didn't even have that ability. I almost feel like in some circles, and this was true for me, I think probably especially in my college years, where the quiet time was almost the central of the the central aspect of the Christian faith. So instead of corporate worship, word and sacrament being central to our Christian faith and practice, the quiet time was central to our Christian faith and practice. And I think that has a lot to do with this strong individualism that has infiltrated Mm -hmm. Christian, I guess, evangelicalism. Absolutely. Before you got to individualism, that was exactly what I was thinking in my mind is that emphasis on just me and Jesus and de-emphasizing the corporate nature of Christianity. And of course, we definitely, definitely do believe that it's a great privilege to have the word um, personally. And we do believe that it's good for all of us to study and um, to understand what it means. 
And like you said, we've talked about that on the discernment episode. This is how we can discern false theology is by studying the truth and studying the word. And so we certainly do think that's important. And we, we, because of that, we do want to talk about how to do it, how to go about studying the Bible. Yeah. And I do want to say first that I don't want anyone to feel like you need to do everything that we say here, but I think that the Mm -hmm. things that we're going to mention tonight are going to be helpful just even if you're somebody who just reads three chapters a day. I think some of the the tools that we're going to offer will be helpful for that. But sometimes I've had times in my life where a devotional book and whatever was in that devotional book was what I had time for with four young children and not a lot of extra time to dig in. And, and that's okay. Sometimes that that's where you're at or the Bible study you're doing for your women's Bible study. Maybe that's the focus of what you're studying right now. And it, those, those are okay. Mm-hmm, definitely. And I'm in a season like that myself. My main study right now is um, through my church and the women's um, study there. And I enjoy that a lot. And I'm thankful that that what we are doing in that study is a direct study of the word. And so that that can be a good use of my time to actually study the word directly. I've just, like you said, gone through different seasons in my life and um, there's all different catalysts for digging into different studies Um you come across a question and you need to find out the answer or, you know, you're, you are reading in one study and it's wonderful. Uh, scripture is all connected. And so it can lead you from one thing to another, to another, and you really can um, spend your lifetime and not get to the end of it. So, you know, there's just lots of different tools that we can use. Just like you said, the Bible study um, through our churches or a devotional book, study guides. Um, I think most of our listeners have probably heard of things called inductive studies before. I know you uh, like to use the Bible dictionary. Um, There's theological dictionaries, concordances, commentaries, just so many tools that are available to us. Well, and yeah, that's one thing I would like to talk about. There are so many neat websites where you have some really neat things at your fingertips. I used to sit at my table with my concordance, which is huge. It's like the huge one. I don't remember what it's called, but my Bible dictionary. And, you know, I'd have my Matthew Henry commentary and then my Bible and, you know, everything was spread out. And now I actually gave some of those things away because it's just easier for me to be on my tablet. And there's actually a website called Bible Study Tools that I use quite a bit. I love looking up what Calvin's commentary says, Matthew Henry's commentary. They actually have tons of commentaries right there at your fingertips. They have the Bible dictionary right there. They have the concordance right there. And I find it so helpful. I love seeing where certain use, certain words are used other places in Scripture. And those, that's kind of how I learn. I, I love doing that. I love reading, you know, the difference between what Calvin might say in a passage and Matthew Henry, you know, after I've studied it a little bit myself. And those tools are just at our fingertips. They're free if you have the Internet. It's so funny. We didn't talk about this <laughs> beforehand, but my my favorites are also Calvin and Matthew Henry. And what's wonderful about those is that you they're free. Um, and just like you said, in my younger days, study looked like a table with a lot of thick books laid out in uh, the wonderful world of the internet. We have all of these things available at our fingertips. So a lot of times I've got my tiny little notebook 
and my phone and that's it. And I'm able to access all of these things that um, help me study. You know, and just as a side note, this isn't necessarily just study, but I, on my tablet, I have so many different apps and I I have an app where I organize my prayer requests. I have, there's, uh, you know, some of the, Ligonier has an app and RTS has an app. And sometimes also even just going on Monergism, which is an excellent resource. If I'm trying to understand a certain passage, I'll go on Monergism and look up that passage and they'll often have several sermons. And I appreciate that because sometimes if I'm not feeling well and I can just listen to a sermon. And I, I know Bible Gateway is not the favorite of a lot of people. And I do use Olive Tree, which is another one. But I do like Bible Gateway too for this reason. They have several audio Bibles for free. And I'm really an, um, an auditory learner. And so for me, I do love really listening. So I, I read too. But for me, when I started listening to the audio Bible, I started hearing things that I would have to go and look at my Bible because I'd hear it in a different way just because that's how I learn. And they have each um, translation and some of the translation, they have more than one voice. So you can listen and see who you prefer reading it. So th- that's another great thing. And it's great for listening in the car if you're mom or on the road a lot. It, I actually will listen to the audio Bible when I'm going to sleep some nights even. So that's an, those are, there's just so many different apps. There's, there's an app. I don't have it anymore. So I haven't looked it up in a long time, but I used to have Calvin's commentary on an app. Now I just used it, use it on Bible study tools, but there's just so much, so much for free that you can get. And I will also just say, there's even a lot of downloadable things. If you have a tablet or a Kindle, Monergism has so many free downloadable books and even some of these resources that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to talk just about some of the things that we do when we're studying scripture. And I think it would be good to just start by talking about what exegesis is and and also what eisegesis is, because we hear that a lot. There's a lot of memes out there. That's not exegesis, that's eisegesis. And so you may see those around and have a basic understanding of what they are, but I really want to talk about specifically what are those things. So I'll let you start, Angela. What is exegesis? Yeah. Um, so here is a great description that we got from Theopedia about what exegesis is. Biblical exegesis is a systematic process by which a person arrives at a reasonable and coherent sense of the meaning and message of a biblical passage. Ideally, an understanding of the original text, so that would be Greek and Hebrew, is required In the process of exegesis, a passage must be viewed in its historical and grammatical context with its time and purpose of writing taken into account. This is often accommodated by asking, who wrote the text and who is the intended readership? What is the context of the text? How does it fit into the author's larger thought process, purpose, or argument in the chapter and book where it resides? Is the choice of words, wording, or word order significant in this particular passage? Why was the text written? To correct, encourage, or explain, or some other reason? And when was the text written? And so the idea in exegesis is that we are trying to 
pull from the text what is actually there, not read into it what is not there. So we want to draw out what the text actually says and means. We don't want to add extra and we don't want to leave something behind and uh, or delete a meaning that we don't like. Right. And we don't want to read our own views into the text. We're trying to, to get something and we, we'll talk about that in a minute, what that looks like. But, but that's important, too. We want to understand the original intent of the writer of the text. Right. And so, and we're, we're going to talk about some more um, tools for how to do this. But just briefly right now, I mean, exegesis has rules. And so um, we have to pay attention to the immediate context, related themes, definitions of words. You know, word studies can be helpful with that. All of that stuff plays a part in understanding what something says and doesn't say. And some of the things that, some of the ways that you do that is observation. You know, what what does a passage say? Interpretation, what does a passage mean? Correlation, how does the passage relate to the rest of the Bible and application? And so we'll talk a little bit how about how to do that in a minute. But I do want to talk about what eisegesis is. Because I think we see an awful lot of eisegesis in the things that we see around. Uh, you know, I, I see this even in some of the, when we've been talking about discernment and we've talked about some of the popular things out there in Christianity, I'll see verses used in certain ways. I'll just give an example of the one that I think of most often where people will often quote Jeremiah 29 11, for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord's plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you hope in a future. And I hear this one used a lot, like by word of faith, people plans to prosper you see the Lord wants you to prosper and be wealthy. Well, that's an example of eisegesis. You're reading what you want the text to say into the text. Right. I often think of, um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me being, you know, printed on the wall of the gym. Um, right. And <laughs> that's a good one. It, 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 the verse in the gym means that I'm going to, you know, get a personal best on my next five miles. But, <laughs> um, you know, careful attention to context would tell us that that verse is actually about Christian suffering. And so, um, it's really not about <laughs> victory in the gym. And so this is another example of eisegesis, putting what I want into the text. Yeah, you know, I I was thinking about, well, actually, maybe a good example is um, when I had, to, I've talked about this before, but somebody sent me um, an anonymous letter that I wasn't being healed because I didn't have enough faith that I was to be healed. And there was lots of verses. Now, all of those verses, I don't still have the letter, but all of those verses by themselves seemed to say what she was trying to tell me. Um, But they were sometimes even just one part of one verse. And I see that a lot with a lot of the word of faith stuff. You'll see them quote the same verses over and over again to try to prove that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. I just watched an old video from Benny Hinn. And the reason I watched it, I looked it up because years ago, he did a video on Trinity Broadcasting about the White Horse Inn guys. They used to be called Cure, Christians United for Reformation. And they had talked about 
that Benny Hinn had bad theology. So he was talking about them and said, you know, I want to get a Holy Ghost machine gun and shoot their heads off or something like that. And so I was looking up that video to give to somebody because I was telling them the story. And in I happened upon a video where he says, God doesn't like cancer, you know, and he's talking about God doesn't want you to have cancer. And he's using passages of scripture to try to argue this, that God wants you to be healthy and you just need to believe and blah, 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 blah. And we see this sort of thing. That's probably a more extreme example, but we see this with graphics that are all over social media where they'll take one verse and the intended um, purpose of putting this one verse is you're supposed to apply that one verse to your life. And a lot of times those verses are taken out of context. Right. And (laughs) we don't want to do that because um, we know from the word itself that it is, we should approach the scripture with reverence and a little bit of trembling maybe we want to accurately handle the word we we should really be striving and pushing against taking individual verses and making them say what we want them to say that we should be fearful of doing that so um i i think having first of all a proper um attitude towards the word of God, reverence towards it. And um, really our goal when we read is to understand and submit to the intended meaning, not really to come with our intended meaning, but rather this is the word of God and I am here to be transformed by it and submit to what it says. So um, it should be our number one priority then to uncover what does it actually say and not add to that? Well, the things in God's word are objective truths. They aren't subjective. I remember when I was younger in a Bible study and they'd say, what this verse means to me as if it was subjective mm-hmm. and it was however I understand it. But we should right. seek to understand the objective truths in the word of God. Absolutely. And, you know, we're getting ready to talk about hermeneutics. Um, You know, you just mentioned, what does it mean to me? And there is an actual, um, there's good hermeneutics and there's bad hermeneutics. And um, there is a a hermeneutic out there called reader response. The idea is that um, when I read the word of God, whatever comes up in me that I think it means is valid because that is how we uncover the meaning is what do I think it means? What does it mean to me? Um, that there's lots and lots of personal meanings. And I would call that an example of a bad hermeneutic because we believe that the original authors have uh, an intent and a um, point that they are making, ideas that they're conveying. And then God himself also has an intent and a meaning. Um, and my meaning isn't either one of those. <laughs> Right, right. And there's things that even previously that I understood certain ways because I read my own feelings into the text. And I really had, I really sought to, when I, when I was becoming kind of when I was discovering Reformed theology, and I really wanted to understand what it is that scripture really taught, not some of the bad things that I'd been taught previously or the ways in which I, understood that. There's things that I've had to backtrack and say, I was wrong in my, in what I taught about that. And, and and that can happen too. I think the more that we study. So if you're not, if you're not 
familiar with hermeneutics, hermeneutics really is the science of interpreting what what has been written. And you know, really, if you go to Second Timothy two fifteen, rightly handling the word of truth, that is what we're doing to accurately discern the meaning of the text. And some of this goes together with what we were talking about with exegesis. But the other thing is too is understanding the entirety of scripture. We don't take things, we don't take one verse and base our theology on that verse, but we want to understand all of scripture together. So when we have one verse that says something, we read that in view of the entirety of God's word. Exactly. And that reminds me of something there is in our hermeneutics in Reformed theology, we have something called the analogy of faith. And what it means is that scripture interprets scripture. So um, you're talking about understanding the whole of scripture. That helps us when we get to difficult passages. Um, the, The less clear passages should be interpreted by the more clear passages. Um, There are a lot of topics and ideas, of course, that are covered in multiple places. And so when we're um, studying a topic, it's important to consider what does the whole of Scripture teach, not just one obscure passage or difficult passage, and then build a whole theology on that. Right. And we, we see that. We see that happening a lot. I'll see people that will focus just on James, and they'll really have a wrong understanding of what it's talking about in James about faith and works. But mm-hmm. there is a right way to understand James based on interpreting James in view of the rest of Scripture, exactly what Angela was talking about. Well, so let's talk about a few hermeneutic kind of tools. Sort of when you're approaching a text, um, there are sort of some tools that we can use um, that are part of hermeneutics that can help us understand the passage. And so the first one that I I think is talked about very often, I know people have heard of context. So let's talk about context and what it means. Um, There's actually more than one kind of context and all of them matter. Okay, so the, the first one is historical context. And this is the world around the text. What's the world that these people live in, Um, the time, the place, all of those things that are going on in the time and place that the book or the passage was actually written. Um, The second part of context is literary context, the words around the text. So that could be the section of scripture and then the whole book. Um, So if you're you're, um, working on a passage that's just three verses, read the whole chapter around the three verses and then read the whole entire book around that chapter. And that's the literary context. Um, And then we have finally the biblical context. And this is how does it fit into the redemptive arc of the whole of scripture? Because we know that all of scripture, all of the books of the Bible are actually one unified book, one unified story with one unified purpose to reveal Christ and to reveal um, God's plan of redemption for sinners. And so we have that final bit of context is how does this passage relate to the whole Bible, other places in the Bible, and the whole redemptive story in, in Scripture? And, you know, I was thinking that we should maybe do a whole episode on redemptive history 
because that's something you'll you'll hear in reform circles where understanding the redemptive historical context. And I'll give an example of that. And a lot of times, let's see the story of David and Goliath. And I think probably everyone has heard some version of you're David and you need to go kill all the Goliaths in your life. And so basically, if people are being mean to you, you need to knock them down. You're David. God's going to give you the power to kill all the giants in your life. And that that's not what the story of David and Goliath is about. Ultimately, the story of David and Goliath points to Christ. And we can see that even through the whole Old Testament, where Hosea, it points to Christ. And there's so many examples. It's amazing. Exactly. And so connecting all of the points um, in the Bible to that greater um, redemptive story is going to help us stay with the real meaning of the text. That's going to help us stay away from certain problems like moralizing. Um, That's the story that you just gave of David and I'm David and I'm going to slay my giants. That's moralizing. That's making me the character um, in the text and, and pulling out, well, what's the classic principle that I can take out of here and go improve my life. But going back to the idea of scripture interpreting scripture, we can, especially when we're in the Old Testament, we can say, how do the New Testament writers interpret this passage? And that can help us find the way that it points to Christ. And that's really also what we're talking about in considering all of scripture when we're reading. Right, exactly. Another tool that is in our hermeneutic toolbox is paying close attention to structure. And there are so many ways that we can do that. Um, First of all, we can take note of the type of literature. There are lots of different types of literature in scripture, poetry, narrative, discourse, apocalyptic literature, prophecy. Um, And so knowing what kind of literature that you're in can help you understand the meaning looking for grammar in the passage. So things like repeated words, phrases, and ideas, um, things, words and ideas that are repeated are often important in the passage. Shifts or contrasts. So looking for certain connecting kind of words that indicate a shift in the argument or a contrast between arguments like if, then, or therefore, or even items in a series or a list, um, those things can indicate meaning to you. Um, Paying close attention to the verbs in a passage and then taking note, who is actually doing the acting here? Who um, Who is doing something? Another one that I really like that I learned actually not that long ago is called bookends. Um, This can happen for a whole um, book of the Bible, but then also a lot of times uh, chunks, passages that easily break out. Bookends means you look at the very beginning and you look at the very end, and very often they are telling you a similar or a repeated thought. And that's, you know, going back to those repeated words and phrases, the bookends kind of tells you, you know, you've heard 
um, say, tell them what you're going to say, then say what you're going to say, and then um, remind them of what you said. That bookends can kind of be a key to you. Oh, this this might help me unlock what the theme or the main idea of this passage is. And then if you're in poetry, um, there's lots of poetic devices as well. Um, a big one for poetry is imagery and repeated images. Um, and then if you if you want to get deeper into poetry and wisdom literature, there's things like chiasms that tells you about the structure and um, works you down to the main um, point there. So there are just so many types of structure and understanding how this, the text is put together that can help you uncover the meaning. One thing you can do also that you have at your fingertips is sometimes when I'm trying to understand something, I will look up what the original words that were used um, Uh in the original languages, and I will then cross-reference where else those same words were used, and that can be really helpful. We did that when we were studying Genesis 3.16. So where else in understanding what does Genesis 3.16 mean? Where else were those same words, the word for desire, for instance, where else was that used in scripture to understand it? Like it was used in Song of Solomon, for instance. And so I think that can be a helpful thing, too, in trying to understand a passage. When you were talking about the therefore, Angela, I always remember, I was probably like 18, but I just remember my pastor at the time saying, if you ever see therefore, you need to see what it's there for. And I've just always remembered that. <laughs> it's not That's a bad great. thing. It's, it's not a bad thing. It is. <laughs> it, it's logical. It, it's That's there right. for something. <laughs> it's, yeah. So, and then the the other thing is kind of engaging your senses. And I'm going to also say this might have a lot to do with your style of learning. And I don't know, you know, how many of our listeners, probably a lot of homeschool mamas, familiar with the different learning styles, but that's when I really understood better how I learned. So uh, sometimes it's helpful to read it out loud. That can be really helpful. And even as you're reading out loud, looking for tone, and it can be helpful even to write it out. That, That can be really helpful for some people. And it can be helpful to listen to it, listen to somebody else reading it, um, like in an audio Bible. And sometimes listening, like sometimes when I'm even studying a passage, I will listen to the whole entire book, even if I'm just studying specifically one passage within that book, listening to the whole book is helpful for me because I really understand the context better. I really agree with you on all of that. And I I agree as well that um, working through and and engaging all of your senses is going to, like you said, help you uncover how how do I learn the best with these things? Um, you, you mentioned earlier that you really like to listen and you were just talking about listening to the entire book. Um, and I really like writing and writing out the passage, writing down observations, keywords, circling, underlining, all of those things are very tactile and that helps me learn. So, you know, I'd say for folks who are just kind of starting out with this experiment, try, try all of those. Each one of them can be helpful to you in different ways. We've talked about some specific hermeneutic tools. Um, I just want to share one that I think um, is 
is kind of interesting. Um, and if, if people are interested in it, I think they can look it up. It's, it's easily findable um, on the internet. But there's something called the clowny triangle, which is kind of funny because to me, it actually works out to look like a square. It's, it's four triangles together, but the whole thing is a square. Um, and it kind of pulls all of these hermeneutic ideas together into one process for studying a passage of scripture. And so I'll just briefly describe it and, and we'll probably find, um, a drawing of it to link um, in our episode. But what you do in this process is that you start with the text. And instead of jumping directly to me now and the application, um, this process is going to help us not jump straight to myself and what does it mean to me, but rather work through all those hermeneutic principles that we just talked about. So we start with the text itself and read it. And our first step is going to be to move to them and then. So the time period and when, when it was written and the people that it was written to. Um, and this is sort of the beginning of exegesis. We're using the structure, the context, the tone, the melodic line of the passage, the theme of the passage, all of those things. And it's, it, this is part of the grammatical historical or author-centered part of hermeneutics. What is the original intention from the original author to the original audience? So that's the first thing that I want to uncover. And then from there, I'm going to move to the cross and ask, how does this part of scripture help reveal the gospel? And this is that redemptive historical or the divine meaning. Um, How does it relate to Christ? What does this tell me about the church? And the interesting thing about this is that, um, again, because all of Scripture works together to reveal Christ, this, this part should not be forced. Um, this is not what some people criticize Reformed theology and say that we're spiritualizing. This, this part organically connects to the first step. Um, it's a higher level of meaning that's organically connected to the author's intention for the original audience. And so once I move through the cross, then I am ready to move into proper contextualization for today and answer the question, how does this apply to me now, the church now, where I'm at now today? And so what's great about going through this process is that it keeps us from following, falling into certain traps. And if you, if you look up the graphic, you'll see that there are some, uh, lines inside the square that tell us the pitfalls that might happen if we skip steps. And so if we skip the original author and the original audience, we might fall into spiritualizing. If we skip the cross, we might fall into moralizing. Um, We could also fall into dehistoricizing, intellectualizing. So if you've ever heard a sermon that was just a lot of like fact downloads. They didn't move through the cross. And so I I really enjoy this method. I use this for my own personal study. It really has helped me a lot move away from um, that whole, what does it mean to me? And start really thinking bigger picture. What did God mean this passage for the church? I find it very helpful for that. And that actually 
came from Edmund Clowney, who was a seminary professor at Westminster. That's right. And, and yeah, one of an early reformed book that I that I read and I would recommend it. In fact, I looked it up and it's you can get it used for $3.99 by Edmund Clowney is called The Unfolding Mystery, Discovering Christ in the Old Testament. And I think that book would be really helpful if you're new to this idea of redemptive history, seeing Christ through all of scripture. That might be a great book to start with. And Absolutely. Give you an idea of of what that looks like. And Angela, when you were talking about the tendency towards moralizing, I think that's so common today. So many of the Sunday school lessons in many churches today where they take these Old Testament stories and they moralize them. And these stories are without understanding Christ in them. They're really absent the main message of scripture. Absolutely. I I was reading earlier today and came across a quote that I really enjoyed um, because it really just emphasized what you just said. The cross changes everything in hermeneutics. What was once concealed is now revealed in Christ. The new and final revelation impacts how we read and understand all prior revelation. And um, that is actually what I have really, really enjoyed about Reformed theology is that it seems so simple, but now the entire Bible is about Christ, but losing sight of that, it can be very easy to think of all of the stories that are in the Old Testament, for example, as just sort of disconnected moral lessons. And what I've loved about understanding Reformed theology and a Reformed reading of Scripture is the way that passages now have an amazing meaning to me that I never understood before. But just understanding that basic idea that all of Scripture is about Christ, suddenly I can read passages and understand that I didn't ever understand before. So that is a really wonderful feeling. And I would say even understanding law and gospel is so important as you're understanding passages, remembering that the law commands and the gospel promises. Because if you just read just some law, you read a short passage that's all law, you could feel crushed. And it's so important to remember the gospel in view of that. So understanding correct law and gospel distinctions as you're studying scripture is also important. I wanted to give just an example. Um, when I was studying scripture, just this very week, one of the verses that people will use a lot is bear one another's burdens. And I think a lot of people think of it in context of my, my brother is suffering, something bad happened to them. And so I want to help bear that. But as I was studying it this week, it actually, the verse prior to it, and that's actually in verse two of Galatians six, but in verse one, it says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit, spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And then it says, bear one another's burdens, thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not 
in regard to another for each one will bear his own load. So that passage is not talking about my brother is suffering and so I'm going to go bear the burden, but it's actually talking about the burden of sin. And, and actually in my studies went to Calvin's commentary and I loved what he said. He said, bear ye one one another's burdens, the weaknesses or sins under which we groan are called burdens. This phrase is singularly appropriate in an exhortation to kind behavior, for nature dictates to us that those who bend under a burden ought to be relieved. He enjoins us to bear the burdens. We must not indulge or overlook the sins by which our brethren are pressed down, but relieve them, which can only be done by mild and friendly correction. Anyways, just an example where we see a verse that's used a lot and understood a certain way, but then when you look at it in its context, and I'm not going to go deeper than that right now, but when you use some of the tools that we've talked about today, it you start to understand it in a very different way than just taking that one verse and applying my own Um, wishes to it. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't come alongside our brother that is suffering also for whatever reason. Maybe they lost a parent recently or a child or something like that because we have passages to that end also. But just as an example of how it's easy to take a verse out of context and, and not understand it correctly and the importance of going and really understanding the context and understanding what's going on in the passage. I think that's a great example. Um, and I think that um, just as you said earlier, um, it's really wonderful as we grow and learn these techniques and um, study more and more to come back to a passage of scripture that we have always thought meant something or um, maybe we were taught that it meant something. And it's amazing how um, the spirit works and does illuminate the word to us. And we have those little aha moments and go, oh, that's not what it means. And realize and understand, oh, this is what it means. And um, that is actually one of the most exciting things to me about studying the scripture is that every time I come, I do feel like I either learn something new or refine an understanding that I didn't really have before. So. Yeah, I think of my grandparents who both lived until nine, well, I guess 90, I think my grandpa died um, maybe 93 or 91, 91 and 92. He was 92. And I think of them that had studied, both of them studied scripture since they were both teenagers. They really studied scripture. My grandfather was a pastor and my grandparents were missionaries. And, you know, they never got tired of studying scripture. There's so much. And it's encouraging that the Lord is at work in us to give us understanding. That doesn't mean he's going to give us some secret message outside of scripture, but that he helps us understand the word that he has given us. So um, since you brought up Edmund Clowney, I'll tell a funny story about Edmund Clowney. When I was reading that book, and I think it was in 1995, and I, the book that I mentioned, I told my friends about it, and her husband was going, well, my friend, her and her husband, those were the friends, that he was going to Westminster at the time, and I said, oh, you should read this book. And he was, he was just taking one class there, so, um, and so he got the book, and he said, oh, I'm going to buy it, because I've got an airplane trip and it'd be great for reading on the airplane. So he got it and he said he went and sat down in his seat and he pulled out the book 
And a man came and sat next to him and said to him, so how are you liking that book? And he said, well, you know, I, I had just started it, so I don't really have much to say, but a friend of mine really recommended it. And he said, hi, my name is Edmund Clowney. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was sitting next to him on the plane. So <laughs> I don't know. I still think that's totally amazing. So he didn't read the book. On the plane. He got firsthand, um, you know, firsthand accounts right from Edmund Clowney for the plane trip. And it, it was just such a blessing for him, I know. Well, I have a yeah about that. And I wanted to say before we get to it, that it's a little bit of a sensitive topic, but I do think it's a little little bit of important yeah about that. And so if you do have young kids in the room, um, you may want to wait to listen to this while they're not around. So there's something going around and it's a, I'm not even going to say the person's name because we usually don't anyways, but this person is a female pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, which really isn't Evangelical Lutheran or a church. Um, But Rod Rosenblatt says it's definitely American. So they ordain homosexuals and whatnot. And so she said that that pornography is okay, especially if it's ethically sourced. Hmm. Now, um, <laughs> I don't think I, there's such anything going around. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've seen it going around and I've seen sort of the caption of it, but I haven't watched it. I don't, I don't know that I could stand it. I'm wondering if she gives a definition. I really can't rip, wrap my head around what, ethically sourced would mean. (laughs) Yeah. I talked to a friend of mine about it today and we were saying ethically sourced pornography is not a thing. (laughs) You know, that's, that's right. I didn't watch it either, Angela, but that pornography, the very nature of what it is, is completely contrary to anything ethical. If our standard is the word of God. So I, I know I probably, we don't have to offer much commentary on that, but I, that was a big <laughs> yeah about that. <laughs> yeah. About that. It doesn't exist. Right. And, you know, I have learned just even being involved in theology gals and talking to gals in our group, just how damaging pornography is. So, I mean, it's it's so difficult because it's at people's fingertips. Just like we have all these wonderful tools, there's also some not great things on the internet, and it can be such a temptation mm-hmm. to so many men and women also, but um, a greater mm-hmm. percentage are men, and and it can become a bit of an addiction because it creates a certain emotion and 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 whatnot, and and it can just be so damaging, and it almost makes me sad because she's given the green light to people to participate in something that is so contrary to what God has given us where um, sexual intimacy is something to be enjoyed within marriage. And the whole idea of pornography is just so it's, is sexual immorality, which scripture is so clear on. Right. Um, it's definitely engaging in lust um, in sexual immorality, just like you said, and it is definitely contrary to the word of God. And so um, we would not say that there's any such thing as ethically sourced pornography. We would say that um, 
the only kind is the kind that we should not be engaged in. Um, it's right. Even if it was a married couple, you're it's right. still sexual immorality. Right. It, it's perverting the marriage bed. It's yep. defiling something that should be holy. It's not something that we should be engaging in. So um, regardless of what she says in her video about whether there's a definition and regardless of what she says about why it's fine, it's not. Right. And this quote unquote pastor's church that it, she left it recently, but is not that far from where I live. And people call it the LGBT church. Um, and I saw another video from her where she was talking about Christ and, and whatnot. And one of my Bible college friends shared it and said, this woman understands the gospel. And and I didn't say this to him or comment on the post. I just thought I better not. But I haven't talked. It's just an old college friend that I haven't talked to in years and years. But I thought to myself, she doesn't understand the gospel because she doesn't understand the law. And you don't understand grace if you don't understand the law. And that's why it's so important that both to understand both law and gospel. Well, I appreciate everyone joining us. Um, just a few housekeeping things. Again, with Christmas coming up, if you want a Theology Gals shirt, it's a great thing to put on your Christmas list. Uh, keep an eye out. We're going to have a discount code for Theology Gals shirts. And so that'll be on our page. That'll be on our all of our social media and in the group. So if that's something you've been waiting to get and, you know, you can say, hey, hubby, here's something I'd like for Christmas. And if you would like to support Theology Gals, um, there's a link to our Patreon page on our, uh, on the, on, every episode notes page. And I'll also put the Christmas episode and I'll, I'll list the things that we've talked about today. We'll try to find a good link to the clowny triangle too, because I think that would be helpful for many of you. So, well, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week. <laughs>